Before we get started today, I wanted to tell you about Around the Rim Presents I'm Speaking, hosted by LaChina Robinson, an interview series focusing on black women across sports, entertainment, and culture who are refusing to be silent right now and who want real change. Episode one features a conversation Robinson has with Netflix Chief Marketing Officer Bozema St. John and WNBA player and activist Natasha Cloud. If you've never heard Bozema speak, you got to get on that podcast. She's incredible. That's Around the Rim Presents I'm Speaking. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, I'm Leslie Visser from CBS, and my dilemma is that I've had too much time to think about stuff. Like, um, okay, obviously I'm sick of empanadas ordering those in, but also I've had a chance to be really annoyed by things in sports. Like, why do they call it walk-off home run? Like, that annoys me, because you know what? It's a celebration, and to call it a walk-off home run, I mean, that's something you do around the neighborhood, that's part. And I know I'm going to get enormous pushback on this, but I think it should be something, you know, congratulatory, something happy, not walk off home run to win the World Series, Joe Carter. Okay, so first off, unrelatedly, whenever I hear the word walk off, I just think of my sweet mom, who's not that into sports. And she emailed months after reading me a story, uh, and her email was just one sentence, simply, what's a walk off? Uh, So my non-sports obsessed parents have been learning a lot over the years by watching and reading my stuff. Um, As for your take on it, walk off does sound a little boring, but it's accurate, right? Like no need to run, game's over. So I'll let you fight the people that are gonna be inevitably coming for you on that one. And just say to your larger point, which is all this time to think. I actually, I agree on it. And I I was just talking to some friends about this the other day. I find that there are people who have found stripping down the elements of their life to very limited things has led to discontent. They dislike their job now. They used to like it, but now it's all they have. Or they liked being a stay-at-home mom, and now it's all they have. They don't like it anymore. They need all the other stuff. And I think we're really finding out the power of balance of exercise and rest, time with friends, culture, music, art, dining out versus staying in, watching movies. Even the calm of a podcast-filled commute that maybe we didn't like before and now no longer make, when you take that out, it sort of changes the way you feel about the elements that have remained. And so while I'd suggest that people don't put too much weight into current discontent with your job or your home or whatever else, um, because it could be a buildup of everything going on now. And it's really hard to look at our mental health and figure out what elements of it are specific to this very strange time and what might be something you want to address. But with that in mind, I would listen to what your heart and your mind are telling you and consider maybe that there are changes that you should make if you still feel the same way when things get back to normal. Uh, But yeah, that too much time to think. Sometimes it's a blessing and we say, slow down, slow down. And other times it is, it is difficult um, to overanalyze the elements that have been nonstop since the pandemic started um, without all the other good stuff that normally helps buoy our mood and give us that good connection with people and all that good stuff. That's what she said. Happy March. Happy Women's History Month and a big happy day and week for me. Because I've been sitting on some news for literally months, 
You guys know me. I got a big old mouth on me. It is hard for me to keep a secret. And I was so pumped today that I got to share it. And I'll share what I said along with the news on social media. Here's what I said. I am so very proud and excited to share that I'm part of the new ownership group for the Chicago Red Stars of the NWSL. I'm screaming. Uh, This is a team that I've supported and cheered on for years, and I never, ever could have dreamed that I'd have the opportunity to be the owner of a professional sports team. It's it's truly wild. Um, I've been in owners meetings for months, so I'm super pumped to finally go public with the news and really get working in earnest to bring even more attention and investment and eyeballs to the oldest and winningest women's pro soccer team in America. And this ownership group is not just owners in investment or in name. We're a really committed group of people with Chicago ties, all of us, and a deep fandom who are hands-on and ready to work to elevate this team and this group of badass players. Longtime owner Arnim Whistler and his team have been presiding over the Red Stars since the very beginning, from tough times all the way to sellout crowds, and now they're going to help lead this new group of us as we enter a brand new era for the NWSL. We've got the star-studded Angel City FC ownership group. We've got big-name owners joining the Courage and the Spirit and KC Massive players in sports and entertainment and business are all betting on women, and I am beyond thrilled to join the ranks of some women that I really admire who helped inspire this move for me. This is my first big investment in anything, and watching Julie Foudy, Abby Wambach, Glennon Doyle, Mia Hamm, Jennifer Garner, Natalie Portman, Billie Jean King, Serena Williams, the list goes on. It just made me feel not only confident in the product and the investment, but a reminder that we put our money where our mouths are and we invest in the things that we think are good products and that deserve to be invested in and that are going to blow up. And I I think it's going to Uh, all signs point to the NWSL and women's soccer just getting bigger and bigger. Um, Plus these owner suites are going to be lit. I'm I'm fired up about that. Um, I can't wait uh, to actually get down to work. We've been at work for months, but now that it's public, it's going to, it's going to ramp up and I really want to help inspire change across the face of pro sports ownership Um, And not just in women's sports, but in men's too, because the biggest way to affect the lack of diversity at the top of sports is through ownership that can better reflect the makeup of the team's players and staff and fans and cities. Um, Up until now, most of the high profile women in sports ownership have earned their roles via birth or marriage. But we've recently started seeing some really badass businesswomen, some former star players, some lifelong execs all getting into the mix. And that allows every little girl to dream of not just being a professional athlete, which is a big enough dream in itself, but now the front office and the owner's box, too. And the ownership group that we have also will allow LGBTQ plus people and people of color and former men's athletes, women's athletes uh, to, to dream of making this transition. So fingers crossed that I'll get to see a bunch of you in person at Red Stars games this summer. I just I'm really excited to share the love that I have with this team, with the existing diehard fans, and then also introduce a bunch of you to what you've been missing. Um couple notes on this, by the way. I will always be the commish. Uh, so now I'm just the commish and the owner totally rad. Um, Also, this doesn't change my role at ESPN. I will always disclose my role with the Red Stars when I'm talking about the team and the NWSL and women's soccer. And with everything else I do, fairness and accuracy are still going to lead any and all commentary. Uh, I'm not a beat reporter. um, So this is a job I think I can balance with the work I'm doing for the Red Stars. And uh, again, if I'm fair and I'm accurate and um, I'm I'm doing things right, uh, it should never be a conflict. Uh, Also, 
I hate that I have to say this, and I hope that there are some of you, I hope most of you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say that there are some random, poorly translated into English clickbaity sites from a couple years ago that inexplicably said that my husband is a billionaire. They also said that I'm several years younger, I have the waist of a supermodel, and I make, like, no money. Um, None of these are true. I don't know why anyone believes them. They are so clearly poorly written. And if I was a billionaire or if my husband was a billionaire, I'd tell you guys. You also have probably all seen my social media. Does my house look like a billionaire lives there? Do you think I would work 11 teen jobs if I was a billionaire? The reason I'm bringing this up is because I love my husband very much, but this is not his thing. He is not involved in this at all, not even a dollar. I know we're married and, you know, what's mine is his, what's his is mine, yada, yada, but we don't operate where we just dump all our money together. Um, we have separate accounts for a lot of stuff. This is all my money. This is all my investment. I worked for this. I earned this opportunity. I earned the respect of the team and the owners to want to reach out to me and ask if I would like to be a part of it. So I want the respect for that. I don't want um, people asking why I didn't mention my husband in the announcement as if to say he's the one that's paying for it. I don't even like the jokes about him being a billionaire, which I usually kind of shrug at, but I really felt like they undermined my hard work and my accomplishments. And a lot of people weren't joking and they just wrongly presumed that a successful woman or a woman doing something badass must be being financially supported by a man. And that's bullshit. And I think it's important to say, because I think women need to see other women making these investments, making big moves, being lady bosses and know that they can do it. It has nothing to do with a man and that a man is not required would like to paraphrase DJ Cool and Let Me Clear My Throat, which was my jam for all of sports and remains a jam. I got a job and I don't need nobody to help me handle my business. Okay. I'm just really excited to get this going, but I had to say that um, it's worth putting out there. And check out the Red Stars page. My owners are brilliant, accomplished business people, marketing mavens, film and TV execs, music managers, some folks you definitely know, like uh, women's hockey star Kendall Schofield and their husband Michael, who plays in the NFL, also former Bears player Israel Adonijay. Just go check out the website uh, for all the info and the bios and the merch and other good stuff. It is an awesome day. I am super pumped, and it feels like... This is the perfect way to start Women's History Month with some lady boss moves um, and also a perfect time for this guest who is absolutely a lady boss and has been making money moves for decades, paving the way for all of us. She is the first in five straight weeks of badass female guests for Women's History Month. It's Leslie Visser. She's a sports writer, TV and radio personality. She's in six halls of fame. When she started out covering the NFL for the Boston Globe, press box credentials literally used to say no women or children. But she forged ahead. She was the first woman assigned to work Monday Night Football, first woman reporting from a Super Bowl sideline, first woman to cover the NFL as a beat, first and only woman to have presented the championship Lombardi trophy at the Super Bowl, first woman in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. First female sportscaster to carry the Olympic torch. First woman on a World Series network broadcast. The first woman on a Final Four network broadcast. And the first woman on an NBA Finals network broadcast. She's covered everything. And in 2020, she was the first woman honored with the Sports Emmys Lifetime Achievement Award. She's currently working for CBS Sports and CBS News. She writes for CBSSports.com. She's a regular on Morning Drive Radio in South Florida and the host of the CBS Sports Network show, We Need to Talk. You can also go to her website, leslievisser.com, and check out her book, Sometimes You Have to Cross When It Says Don't Walk, A Memoir of Breaking Barriers. 
We get into all of it. You guys are going to be blown away by Leslie, her accomplishments, her wit, intelligence, all the barriers she's broken down, not to mention her unreal memory for games and scores and stories and all that. You guys are going to love this. That's what she said. So if you made it through that introduction, and I'm impressed if you did, because uh, it's a, it might be the entire podcast if I'd really laid out every single accomplishment and achievement of this woman. And what I can admit is that I don't know enough about her for someone who has followed in her footsteps and been able to walk through doors because of her. So I'm so excited, Leslie, to have you on and really get to know you beyond just the, the laundry list of accomplishments and firsts. And in order to do so, we have to go all the way back to I love hearing that for Halloween as a kid, while everyone else was princesses and Mary Poppins, you would dress up as former Boston Celtics guard Sam Jones. I need to know more about this little girl and why that was just a natural thing for you to want to do. Oh, Sarah, thanks for all that. By the way, right behind me is my picture from last year's Halloween in my Sam Jones jersey, which is still doing it. I love it. Yeah. And he calls me because Courtney by now he's a good friend of mine. And he calls me every year and he says, Leslie, please do not dress up for really your jersey. I mean, you're in your 60s, please. I say, I don't care. But uh, I was just a kid who loved sports the way other kids love poetry or music. And I love the Celtics. It just showed how colorblind sports could be because uh, I just love Sam Jones. Of course, those Celtic teams were magnificent. And uh, I don't know, Sam Jones, I, I love the bank shot. I remember I got uh, high cut cons from Santa Claus and at the time I was writing 24 and magic marker on my shirt. But uh, eventually I got to meet him and to know him and uh, just really to listen to everything he's been through. He just told me a couple of weeks ago that here he is, Sam Jones, one of the 50 greatest players, won 10 titles, only exceeded by Bill Russell. And he told me a couple of weeks ago that he still puts both hands on the steering wheel. And if he's ever pulled over by a policeman, he's, mm. he, he says to the policeman, um, either take me right to the jail right now. I'm not going to make a move for the glove compartment or my wallet. This is Sam Jones. And I said, why do you do that? And he said, I'd rather go to jail than the graveyard. Mm. That's so sad to hear. Um, so, I mean, I love the obsession. I was obsessed with Michael Jordan growing up and my family never uh, had anything to say about it other than to be encouraging. But I, I know why I was so into it. It's because I was, you know, gigantically tall for my age and my family was very active. We played a lot of tennis and golf and softball in the backyard. But this is many years after you. This is this is the 50s when you're growing up and telling everyone as a little girl, my most favorite and important thing is sports. What was it about your mom, you think, that made her want to encourage you to be a sports writer at the age of 10, even though it literally didn't exist for women at the time, instead of her either not agreeing or just wanting to protect you by telling you it would be too tough? Well, first of all, I have to talk about your uh, Ivy League athletic career because <laughs> I think you and I exchanged uh, somewhere along the way emails. My husband, Bob Knuth, was a captain of basketball at Harvard. So he- nice that you played at Cornell. And he thinks that everything, you know, rises and sets with uh, Ivy League sports. And oh, I, he's smart. Yeah, he's very smart. Yeah, he is smart. I do have to <laughs> give it uh, to the Ivy League. You know, they were the first ones who shut down uh, the leagues back uh, when the pandemic, everyone wasn't yeah. sure. But yeah, it's sort of uh, the country went as the Ivy League went. But uh, in terms of my mom, I had a kind of a crazy upbringing. My dad was raised in Amsterdam 
and knew nothing of American sports. And he wasn't Jewish, but he grew up under the Nazi occupation. His family uh, got him out. He came. Holland was liberated, I think, in 45. And uh, he came over then. And my mom was like, not lower middle class intellectually, but uh, financially. But she she kind of loved sports. And she was from a time that women really could not express an interest really in sports. But uh, we moved a lot because my dad was, um, he was with the Stanford Research Institute. So we would move pretty much. Uh, I think they got divorced on our 11th move. <laughs> wow. That's a, yeah, that's a lot, lot to make it through actually before you, before you're yeah, like, I'm was, out. <laughs> it was great for sports. You know, we live in Baltimore. It was Johnny Unitas and the Colts. Uh, but um when I told her we were living in Cincinnati and I just, I love sports. I was somebody who, you know, tuned in my transistor to listen to the Ali Frazier fights. And I grew up listening to Kirk Gowdy call Red Sox games in Boston. So um, when I was 10, we'd moved again to Ohio and I told my mom, she asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, you know what? I want to be a sports writer. And she didn't say, 1963 this was, she didn't say, oh, girls don't do that. You know, you have to be all honorable professions, but you have to be a nurse or a teacher, or domestic uh, or a housekeeper. And um, I said, I want to be a sports writer. And she said, that's great. Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk. Wow. And that's the name of your book. I love that her words carried that long. I'll get back to that. Um, but so you, so you go on to, to high school and end up at Boston College, a, a great university. It's, it's certainly not Ivy League, but, you know, commendable all the same. And you you major in English and you start writing for the paper there. Um, throughout high school and college, was there pushback? Were there people like your mom that said, absolutely go for it? Or were you more meeting some sort of withering stares in terms of the decision to keep pushing forward? Well, the, the blowback didn't happen until I got to the Globe because uh, first of all, it was a very heady time. Uh, it was a time when I was in college, we were coming off the 60s. And I myself, I had marched for equal rights. I'd marched for civil rights. I went to high school in the Berkshires and all those colleges out there. It's a very political area. And so uh, I was used to being unafraid to have a voice. And I wrote for the Boston College paper. And you know, Sarah, when you're in college, you think, oh, I'm probably not going to see these people ever again. Well, my <laughs> sports editor at Boston College was Mike Lupica. Wow. Wow. So, you know, it was, and Bob Ryan had been there before uh, Mike and myself. So it, Boston College had a tradition. It's just I was yeah. a female. But um, I remember uh, I wouldn't get the great assignments. You know, um, it's Mike Lupica would go when uh, Boston College played Miami in football, you know, and I'd maybe have a lousy basketball game, but I did get to go when Boston College played Texas Tech. And um, I remember the coach then, Joe Yukika, because Boston College was very regional. We were in Independence then with Penn State and Notre Dame, and we came back from Texas Tech. And uh, I remember Joe Yukika, then the coach, got up in the plane and announced to everybody after we beat them, the South is dead. <laughs> and I said, yeah, sports is the greatest. Right. Very so, dramatic. Uh, the way I got to the Boston Globe was because at the time in 1973, 
the Carnegie Corporation, the Carnegie Foundation grant gave 20 scholarships nationally. Uh, they were uh, grants, 20 grants nationally to women who wanted to go into jobs that were 95% male, which sounds crazy, right? 1973, pretty much all white collar jobs then were 95% male. Wow. And, uh, a woman from I remember Michigan got it for archaeology. A woman from Johns Hopkins got it for ophthalmology, and I got it for sports writing. <laughs> so that's, that's wild. That's incredibly impressive. It, yeah, it was great. So, so there's there's a, a lot of um, prestige in being one of only twenty to get a grant like that. But when you show up at the Boston Globe, do the people there feel inspired that you've arrived because of that, or is it this is sort of like? Oh, this is like a hire because she's a woman and she won't be talented and skilled enough to keep up. Well, I started as an intern on the Carnegie Foundation stipend. So I was there for, for five months, a whole summer. So they got to see whatever kind of work that I did, which included some mistakes, which I'm sure you want to hear. <laughs> embarrassing moments. But uh, those are important. A lot of people don't admit those, Leslie, or stop and even mention that they occurred. And then the people coming up think we've all been perfect en route to our success. So it's useful to mention mistakes as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, but when I graduated, the Boston Globe hired me full time. So they'd had. But yeah, I remember uh, we all started. I don't know if you did, Sarah, but I think covering high school football is just a great learning platform. And uh, so I covered uh, high school football when I first got to the Globe. Now, by the way, I'm sure you know, this was the time that newspapers were great. It was the time of Watergate. Uh, the Boston Globe had published the Pentagon Papers, a very progressive, muscular, big time paper. And everybody at that time was the best at his position. Bud Collins was the best on tennis. Peter mm. was the best on baseball. Bob Ryan on basketball. Will McDonough on football. So it was kind of like a moving train and I had to get on it or get out of the way. But I remember in covering high school football uh, one time. I had to, I was division four, smallest division. Dan Shaughnessy had division three and Kevin DuPont maybe had division one, but division four meant that they were all the smallest schools. So I would have to take the ferry to Martha's Vineyard to cover the Martha's Vineyard Nantucket game. And I remember I get out there and you can imagine what it's like. You're holding an umbrella in one hand, you're keeping the stats in the other, you're running up and down the field. I'm, you know, they think I'm from Mars as the only, <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, when you first learn football, they go up to the 50 and then they cross the 50 and the math's a little tricky there. You know, okay, was it eight yards plus or subtract? So what the heck? I'd give the kid another 20 yards, right? <laughs> Sunday in the Boston Globe, you think they're not reading Gammon's notes, Bud's notes, Will's notes, right? Okay, so this is a true story. So the phone rings one day in the Globe Sports. Leslie, it's for you. I say, hello, Leslie Visser. And I hear, Leslie? This is Coach Paul Bryant of Alabama. I see here that you have a kid rushing for 450 yards a game <laughs> at Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> is this a young man we should be looking at? <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, Coach. No, I really don't think the oh, four no. fisherman's son is really what you want. No. Oh my gosh. I, it is funny the things that you now. It, they're so ingrained, but when you're coming up, you're still learning. I remember I worked with a young woman and I was a bit her senior and I read one of her blogs for the website we both worked for. And she had 
she had players averaging a thousand yards a game. She was like, she wasn't figuring yeah. out like the, the stat lines by game versus like career log or, or season log. And so I had to kind of walk her through it, but I mean, it, it is, I used to, when I first started, I used to think a punt and a kickoff, like I would write them down as the same thing in the game logs. And my yeah. boss had to come and be like, you got to put when they're punting and when they're kicking off, those are different. I'm like, I don't know. They're just kicking it far. Uh, you have to learn. Right. And you got to learn somewhere. So you end up getting hired by the globe though. So obviously the, uh, Mistakes are not too many. And you spend 14 years there. What's the thing that stands out to you most about, you know, what you learned at what must have been the most obvious, you know, sort of big leap for you as a as a professional? It was Brigadoon. It was uh, the carnival of excellence. I mean, really to get every day and you, people went in the office every day. So to go in every day and um, the original PTI, absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure Mike and Tony will acknowledge this. The first two were Peter Gammons and Bob Ryan talking about, you know, who sweats more, Moses Malone, or <laughs> you know, or who has the biggest rear end or who, who's the worst uh, reliever in history. And um, it was a privilege. It was a privilege to go in there and um, because I was, I, I knew sports. I, I always say that, you know, men don't have a genetic blueprint where they were born recognizing a safety blitz. They learned it and they loved it like we do. And, uh, because I could write on deadline and I guess I had, I knew the sports and I had a way, uh, with the words that I got to go everywhere. I covered Wimbledon with Bud. I covered the world series with Peter, the NBA finals with Bob, uh, the Super Bowl with Will. And then the Globe made me the beat writer for the Patriots. So it was just a uh, matter of fact, when CBS first came to offer me a job in 1984, I said, well, why would I leave the Globe? <laughs> yeah. Why would you? I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable. The stories that you could tell, I can only imagine from being in a newsroom with those folks. Um, did you have any doubts early? So much of this business, especially as a woman, is the combination of the typical sort of imposter syndrome, which anyone might have, man or woman, no matter the level of success you've already had, where you wonder if you're going to be found out for not deserving your spot. But that's compounded by a society that's actually telling you, you don't deserve this. Why are you here? Go away. This is a man's thing. So that confidence becomes so necessary. And it's tough to find early on before you have the validation of bosses or peers or fans or whatever. So were there moments early on, whether that was because of harassment or not being able to get into a, a, a locker room or anything else where you thought, you know, maybe this isn't for me? Uh, I had what uh, John Madden used to say, I was caught in a two-way go because uh, as the first, I didn't want to complain to the Patriots that there were no equal access provisions, no locker room. And I didn't want to complain to the Globe because I didn't want them to say, oh, really, I guess a woman can't do it. Mm. So a lot of... Uh, decisions on the fly. And I was lucky that the writers at the Globe were so secure. You know, they were, uh, I think that group of us were in like nine halls of fame. So <laughs> they didn't, they just wanted me to rebound in the pickup games, you know, that, but that's uh, right. But, but certainly the coaches, um, uh, the NFL coaches just could not understand. And uh, they were troublesome. The, the great ones, ironically, were uh, the black players. They were wonderful to me. And I remember asking Sugar Bear Hamilton and Tony McGee, I used to go over to their house and they would run the old eight millimeter tapes and they would explain, okay, 
this is the difference between the three, four and the four, three. And here's the responsibility of the Mike linebacker or whatever. And I finally said, why are you guys so great to me? And Sugar Bear Hamilton, who's a friend to this day, he said, because we know what it's like Mm -hmm. to be only one. I always say that it frustrates me beyond the norm when marginalized groups aren't in support of each other, whether that's feminism not being intersectional and white women prioritizing what will help them and not women of color, or whether it's um, men of color who seem to completely forget when women uh, are are suffering some of the same lacks of of opportunity and respect. Uh, So it's 1976 when you become the first NFL beat writer, female. And you've told this story a bunch, but the actual credential around your neck said no women and no children in the locker room. So was that a fight from day one or was it just sort of like "Ah, everybody just ignores that it says right here, I'm not supposed to be here? Well, for me at the time, uh, I had an attitude of attitude. I couldn't believe that something I had dreamed of since I was nine or 10 years old, uh, scoring games myself late at night, listening to Kirk Gowdy, uh, that was, it was happening. And so it was kind of, uh, you know, whatever they throw at me, there was no group to appeal to, you know, there, you guys hadn't come along yet. So um, I just looked at it like, okay, I'll just cross that out. And, you know, they didn't have ladies rooms. So, cause they hadn't been any other women. So I'm sure you might've heard me tell this. I'd be in the press box. Patriots would have the ball first and 10 on their own 20. And I'd say, Hmm, can I get down the press box elevator across the field, go to the bathroom and get back up? You know, I was like Usain Bolt. Yeah. Yeah. You got to work out every game too. (laughs) I did and get back up. But uh, I think I just, uh, I loved it. You know, it was the passion I had so outweighed the hurdles and it was a blast. I mean, I hate for people to think, oh, how dreary. I mean, my dad grew up under the Nazi occupation. So really, um, right. I just managed to, to deal with it. And, uh, you know, this is my 45th year covering the NFL. So um, I think my passion endured. So um, you ended up marrying Dick Stockton, who you met uh, during the 1975 World Series. And you guys were married for quite some time up until 2010. Did your job change at all when you had another stalwart of the business on your arm or at least in your back pocket if somebody tried to cause you some trouble? Well, ironically, uh, and Dick was great. We had a great marriage, both happy, happily remarried. But uh, I loved it that he loves sports. So we could talk. I don't know if your husband's involved in sports, but you know yeah. and that you can talk in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what should they do on the out of bounds pass? Should they cover the out of bounds pass? You know, you can actually talk about it. But uh, so I love that. Also, we had the business in common. But ironically, this was funny. Um, when we got married, Red Auerbach and Bill Russell came to our wedding. Now, do you think anybody in Boston cared about Leslie Visser and Dick Stockton getting married? When they're over by the shrimp bowl, <laughs> our back and Bill Russell, but they stole I the bride's shot spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> they did. But ironically, I had to cover a uh, Celtics Knicks game, maybe a year later or whatever. And David Stern had been great in opening the locker rooms for women. He was way ahead of the other leagues. And um, Red wouldn't let me in. <laughs> and it was like, uh, I remember Shaughnessy wrote about it. He gave Red the Ross Barnett Award, the famous governor of Alabama. And uh, yeah, it was, I was like, Red, what are you talking about? I'm credentialed. And no, he wouldn't let me in. So uh, Wow. <laughs> that's, that's the thanks you get. 
Oh my gosh. So in those moments when you aren't let in, I understand 100% where you're coming from when you say, if I put up a stink, then it's a reminder that I'm different. I just need to get the job done in whatever capacity. I can't even know they're making it more difficult than they should. But on the other hand, it must be frustrating to keep having to endure that instead of forcing them to recognize that times had changed and you needed to do your job just as well as anyone. What was your preferred mode? Was it suck it up and try to do what you can? Or was it slowly grind them down? Or was it behind the scenes to create a stink? Did you have a plan for making it so that people couldn't just put up that wall and not let you in? Well, the Boston Globe was great in supporting. I was physically thrown out of the Cotton Bowl locker room in 1980. Houston played Nebraska. And uh, they came around with armbands in the fourth quarter. And I thought, oh, my God, it's a new decade, 1980. And this is not going to be a problem. And so I went in with all the other writers. And they had a coach, Bill Yeoman, who uh, he was just startled. Houston had won on the last play of the game, and he was startled to see this woman coming in. And he he gone. He was a West Point guy, and he marched me out of there. And you know, you don't want to be the subject of all the cameras turning mm. toward you. And I was credentialed; I was allowed in. And so the Cotton Bowl had to issue me and the Boston Globe an apology. But I think what people don't know is that um, there was no. Uh, area of support. Um, now it gives me such enormous gratitude that women can do whatever they want. A young woman now can be you, Sarah. She can want to be the Sarah on the field at the Super Bowl as an mm -hmm. official. They can have radio shows. They can be on television. They can be in leagues. But back then, there weren't, everybody was evolving. So it isn't just that, you know, I was evolved and that so that's the way everybody should be. I mean, as you know, in this country, we're still getting over slavery. It took um, right. Africa quite a long time to get over apartheid. So everything wasn't going to change just because here I was. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I wish it I wish it would. Um, so you go um, you go from the globe to CBS. You start out part time and then you become full time. And now you're covering the NBA and college basketball, the World Series. Talk about your uh, ability to jump from sport to sport. There are people who will focus on one thing their entire career, and that is tricky enough. But to be able to cover such a wide array, was that something that you wanted? Or was it just what the job demanded? And then you decided, okay, now I need to know as much as I can know about horse racing or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah triple crowns. Um, with You know, I was really blessed because um, I sort of played at the highest level in the jobs. Um, it was either the Globe or network television. And when I came in to television, uh, CBS had all the properties that I had covered and they did it, you know, at the network level. So it was kind of funny when I first said, well, gosh, I really love the Globe. And Ted Shaker and Neil Pilson, they were the executives. They said, Leslie, there are only 20 of these jobs in America, X amount at CBS, X amount at NBC. And uh, so I got to do the World Series at the network level, the final four I mean, I, I think I've covered now 35 final fours, but it was, uh, it was fantastic. And I thought to myself, I can flex a different set of muscles here. And a lot of people see now people from uh, newspapers on television, uh, but it's not, it's not the same as 
being on a network broadcast where if you're going to see the champion crowned, you have to watch that broadcast. It's not where you're like, there are thousands of papers, there are thousands of radio shows, thousands of podcasts. So it was enormous pressure, but um, I grew to love it. Not, I always felt I'm still a writer. Uh, Like I'm not someone who swears a lot. Um, For instance, I think there are a lot of people in, Twitter podcasts, I guess, and they swear. And I always thought that was a substitute for more clever language. Like if you deeper, you can come up with something that describes it better. Right. I wish I could agree with you, but love swearing, Leslie. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> I will tell you the origin, maybe you know of many of those words, F, S, all those. Yeah. They're the leftover Anglo-Saxon peasant words after the Norman invasion. They brought like we say, some people say yes, they brought defecate into You know the- what? You're speaking my language, Leslie, because I love, and on this podcast, I literally go into the etymology of words. So yes. maybe maybe today we'll dig into some swear words. Um, I think they must be used sparingly, but effectively. And they, they hit you where they need to when you use them, if you use them right. They can't be a crutch. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Hope. Hope. I love hope. Started in the 12th century as a noun and then became a verb as well in the 13th century. A word that has come up a lot lately in conversation, in speeches, in music, in probably people's secret journals. The need for hope, the need for positivity, a belief that what's to come will be better and must be better, right? That we're going to make it through 2020. We're going to make it through 2021. Um, Hope, the great uh, Emily Dickinson had a short poem It's a good one. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity. It asked a crumb of me. Hope. It's a great word indeed. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. So in honor of Women's History Month and Leslie Visser in particular, the word of the week is doyen, a woman who is the most respected or prominent person in a particular field. The word originated in 1905 as the feminine of the French doyen, which was a dean or the senior member of a body from the early 15th century. So the men's version, 15th century, women's 1905. And don't think it's lost on me that it took 450 years for the world to decide it needed a word for the female version of a respected and revered boss. (sighs) In a sentence, then, owing to her proficiency and longevity in the field, Leslie Visser is considered by many to be the doyen of sports media. No more proof needed than the influence she's had on all that came after her, like one of my great friends and former ESPN colleagues, Jane McManus. has got a little tribute to Leslie here. Hi, I'm Jane McManus. I'm a sports columnist at Deadspin, and I'm the director of the Center for Sports Communication at Marist College. And I wouldn't be a sports writer had it not been for Leslie Visser. It is hard to imagine, I think, for young women now, just how few women there were in really prominent roles on television and in the sports pages. But I was a huge basketball fan when I was in college, and I can remember very clearly Leslie Visser doing those on-court interviews during and after the games. And um, I remember there was this one time that that Bobby Knight was just a complete jerk to her and said something really dismissive. And, you know, she just took it and she looked up at him and kind of rolled her eyes. And I thought, oh, 
well, I kind of like that. If that's a job description, I could definitely be a professional eye roller. And um, anyway, for somebody who loves sports and, and really, um, you know, that was kind of planted the seed for me that maybe that was something I could do. And later on, when I um, was working with you, Sarah, at ESPN, I ended up starting to play roller derby. And, um, you know, everybody in roller derby has a pseudonym. And what better way to have a pseudonym than to pay homage to somebody who's your mentor and hero. And so my pseudonym for roller derby was Leslie Eviscerate. And the tagline was, she cuts through the pack like a hot knife. Um, And I really loved that. And so did she. And I ended up sending her a picture uh, with her name on the back of my jersey uh, when I was playing in a a bout once. And, you know, over the years, Leslie Visser has become a mentor of mine and a friend. And there is nobody better to recognize for Women's History Month. Leslie Eviscerate as a roller derby name is beyond legendary. Thanks, Jane. Let's get back to the interview. So you end up, obviously, you cover all these things at the highest level, but then you also have these intersections of sport and, and real history, right? The fall of the Berlin Wall and, you know, these moments that that pass by and, and you probably sort of remember history alongside the sport that was happening concurrently. Are there lots of moments like that for you or are you able to separate or is everything sort of a timeline of what you were personally covering at the time? No, a few of those really stand out. I mean, the greatest assignment I ever had was to be at the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was one of the two great stories of the century, uh, along with what caused them to put up a Berlin Wall. So, no, to be there, especially my dad from Amsterdam, mm-hmm. uh, just my assignment, by the way, of course, Stan Rather, and you know, we had a million news correspondents, and my little slice of the pie was going to be how will sports change in East Germany? People who followed the Olympics, uh, East Germany went from, you know, basically five medals in the Summer Olympics to about 120 after they were clearly, the Stasi was involved in a program to dope the athletes. And so mine was going to be, you know, will, will there be a Boris Becker from the other side of the wall? And just to be there and see people who walk for days from Dresden and Potsdam to get through the Brandenburg Gate and taste freedom, that was monumental. The, the other two that were sort of along those lines. Uh, I got to be one of the first reporters along with Judy Batista, the great Judy Batista. We were allowed to go to ground zero with both the Jets and the Giants in their relief efforts. And so that was uh, very, very powerful to be down there. And you know they were handing out food and doing whatever it was they could. And uh, Judy and I got to witness that, which was you know really uh, remarkable. And the other one, These are kind of in descending order, I guess. But uh, I did the first interview with Yao Ming when he was still in China. I did it for real sports. And it was amazing. Oh, here, you'll laugh at this. Um, So the whole week, you know, they were emerging from communism, but it was still a a communist country. And uh, you've probably done uh, interviews. Well, I guess the Iron Curtain hasn't been there for a while. But uh, you always have a government minder if you're in a country like that. So an entire week we spent in Shanghai and there was the government minder, the translator, the sort of keeper to keep us all in line and then Yao. So, you know, the question I would ask, like you see Mariano Rivera, someone has to ask, 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 and then he answers. Only this was uh, communist 
government minders. So I would ask them a question, you know, and three people later, the answer would come back. The very last day we were there, Sarah, I said to the interpreter, I said, would you ask Yao, he's about to enter the NBA draft. He makes, I think he made 15,000 then for the Chinese national team. Right. I said, would you ask Yao, who's about to enter the NBA draft, how he thinks uh, he will feel about making millions? And Yao Ming cuts me off. And first time he spoke in English says to me, I'll get used to it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So you're like, you've you've understood me the whole time. Yes, of course. <laughs> At least I part left. of it. Yeah. Everything's a bit, as Nora Ephron taught us. Yes, that's so. right. So not long after the Berlin Wall, you become a regular on the NFL today. You become the first woman to cover the World Series. You become the first and only woman to do the Super Bowl trophy presentation. Of all those firsts, first Monday night football, first uh, beat reporter in the NFL, was one more comfortable than the other because of the nature of the sport and the men and people in it or less comfortable because of that? Well, the most fun is college basketball because their characters, Rick Majerus, uh, was one of my best friends until we tragically lost him way too early. Rick, for those who don't know him, was a very heavy, brilliant coach, took Utah to the Final Four. And Rick used to say he wanted us to do a show called 10, where I would be the one. He would, <laughs> <laughs> he would you know, But I mean, Rick grew up, he was, his dad was a union leader in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and he took Rick to the uh, marches in Selma, Alabama. So I just loved, and their characters, you know, um, Rick Pitino's a character. They mm-hmm. asked him, you know, all those big East coaches were a riot. Bayheim, John Thompson, and they all, you know, I'm, I guess I'm living proof of uh, tempting equality. So, you know, who doesn't love Billie Jean? I, I, one of my greatest honors is um, Billie Jean gave me her only outstanding journalist award. And um, you probably read this before that Billie said, but she has like one of the greatest pieces of advice ever because it was really tough for me along those ways uh, along the way even though I loved it as Billie Jean's journey has been the most difficult and rewarding Uh, I always say I think when she beat Bobby Riggs that was the seminal moment of the women's movement it was about gender equity it was about social equity she took him on because Margaret Court (laughs) wasn't able to Mm -hmm. and when I asked her one time I was having like kind of a tough go of it and she said Leslie Pressure is a privilege. Yeah. One of the best quotes ever. Yeah. It's a one that and um, the flip side, the sad side was when Jim McKay was on the air during the Munich massacre, 50 years next year, by the way, everyone should start thinking about it. And Jim McKay just said simply, they're all gone. Mm. Yeah. So Uh, anyway, so I felt comfortable. No, I'm sorry to answer your question. I felt comfortable in all, in all the sports and, you know, a lot of guys went over the line over the years. Um, matter of fact, you know, a lot of athletes can't tell how old you are when you have a cap on. So at the Super Bowl in Atlanta, some player was giving me, of course, you get it all the time, Sarah, but some player was giving me, yo, baby, yo, baby, what are you doing after the game? And I looked at him, I said, are you kidding? I'm on Medicare. <laughs> <laughs> and he ran, he went like, ah! <laughs> like a thousand miles an hour away from me. Oh. But I used to handle that, which worked for me. I used to handle it um, telling them, now your mother didn't teach you to talk like that. Hmm. Others don't teach their sons to be crude. Um, and it, it had a good effect. You know, no one yeah. wanted to embarrass his mother. So it was yeah. that worked for me to sort of, we can move past it. 
I always use a uh, humor, which is the, it's not as effective in chastising and shaming them, but it, it achieves the same result of avoiding, <laughs> avoiding. Like the, give me an example. Like I would um, say your mother didn't teach you. What would you use? Uh, it, you know, it's, pro- it's specific to the, to the case. There was one player who had given me his phone number and I never used it. And then he had been away for paternity leave. And he said, Oh, would you like to see my son? And I said, Oh, sure. So I'm looking at his phone picture on his phone of this new baby. And he said, how come you never, how come you never called me, honey? And I, and I think I just cracked a joke about, Oh, it seemed like you were pretty busy with your wife and child, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. you know, kind of with a wink, like you, you were pretty busy with this thing right here that I'm looking at. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I have actually, I've, I've certainly, I mean, I'm not in locker rooms nearly as much as you and out and about. I'm oftentimes in a studio, um, which I do think is partly allowed me to feel like things are getting better when they think they're just getting better for me because I'm not around it as much. And I don't think it's actually getting better for the people who are up and coming. Um, but I have found more problems with um, male reporters in the industry not believing that we belong than I have with coaches or athletes. Um, and that might just be because of the spaces that I'm in for you over the course of your many years, where was most of the conflict coming from players and coaches Uh, or bosses or colleagues? uh, Never colleagues, never, ever. And not at CBS either. Not the globe. The globe was, you know, so we won the best sports section every, every other year. So, uh, and I got along, I made great friends out of Mike Downey and Feinstein. And, you know, I, I do think it helps if you are, someone who's out there in the trenches with them and they can see that they get to know you instead of assuming. Yeah. Or that just that you're working just as hard. Like, do you ever, uh, do you ever lament that you don't know half the athletes you talk about? Yeah. I mean, it's tough. That's why I try so much. I, I try to focus on always being fair. Right. Um, and trying to really know that whatever's going on about that athlete or has become the rumor about them is based in the people who do work with them. And I've often said to our reporters, people like, Woj, I say the, the only reason people like me can do our jobs on, on radio and TV is because people like you are there every day and getting the information and reporting it. And then we react to that and, and you need all those kind of jobs. But um, I do think it's unfair when people there, I mean, famously in Chicago, people used to get frustrated with Mariotti because he would go on TV and bash people. And then his colleagues would have to go into the rooms and bear the brunt of the reaction to what he had said about them. So, yeah, I, well, I, I tell think- me, tell me about the climate. Now there seems to be so much energy tied up, in journalists bashing each other and there's some retribution and then there's revenge. And you know what? I always say that most of the people, myself included, if, if we walk down the street in Albuquerque, no one would know who we are. Yeah. It's too much. But so I, and, and tell me this because you and Julie did that really brave, brave, brave video. But do you ever think, why do I bother with Twitter? Yeah. Oh my gosh. All the time. It's a terrible cesspool, but it's an incredible place for information. Um, Part of my job right now, it relies so much on every single night spending two hours for radio. And then depending on the TV I'm doing during the day, reacting to the latest piece of information. And that's so much easier to pick up through Twitter than it is to wait for someone to compose a full article. Also, so much of the conversation that we have on the shows that I do is involves a bit of the internet shorthand and the 
vernacular of the day. And that's those inside jokes that are spread amongst this group of people at what we consider sort of this big virtual sports bar. Um, you could yeah, do it incredible is. work separately from that, but the sort of extemporaneous conversations around these things are much more of a extension of what you're already doing on social media than they are an extension of a full-fledged column, depending on what your aim is when talking about it. Yeah, I guess what I'm talking about is that like Julie is such a great writer. You are so knowledgeable on Around the Horn that um, it makes me sad that both of you, probably if someone were to Google you, it would come up first. Right. About people. And yet those people were anonymous. The, the great yeah. Ernie Corsi, who of course was with the Colts and Cleveland and the Giants. And Ernie Corsi used to, he was the general manager. And he used to say, I don't want to, I don't want to think about or quote anyone who doesn't have a stake in it. If you don't have a stake in it, you are immaterial to me. And that's not your colleagues talking or you reporting on someone, but to listen to those tweets, I mean, to what, if they're anonymous. Yeah, I'm so glad on, because I really want to know this. Yeah, I think it was maybe Tina Fey who very smartly said, I'm never gonna take a no from someone who can't give me a yes. Right. There's your opinion is meaningless. If you think I don't belong in my job. Great. Well, you can't give me a job either. So I don't really care what you know. Um, I agree with you. I think I very I, I very much pick and choose those terrible people I interact with based either on needing to vent and not digest it all day without having fun by clapping back with some sort of, you know, fun retort um, or to show other women that I'm getting by it with with grace and a sense of humor and then it's not getting to me because I do think that the young women coming up that don't have the confidence that I do to deal with it need to see that they're not alone and that that this is happening to other people and that you can you can move through it and not let it bog you down um, it's sort of an inevitability now of the job it doesn't have to be but it's pretty tough to do without it and so that's why I still engage occasionally um, although I do a lot of just muting and blocking and, and not wasting my time with it that's for sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it's uh, something that um, if, I mean, I got hate mail at the Globe. I don't want to read you or any other broad in the Boston. Right. Actually, the, um, who was it who called me? The draft board called me because they couldn't believe Leslie had to be a man, a byline, a man. Why hadn't I reported for the draft? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't think people are being sincere if they say that it doesn't affect them to read right. that. I think no, it certainly does. It certainly does. But every day I sort of just weigh the benefits versus the effect that it has on me. And, and right now it still is is truly a benefit to me in terms of information gathering, connecting with other people, sharing ideas and thoughts, you know, what, talking through things before I get to the. Um, but, yeah, it depends on the day, of course. Um, well, I'll tell you how I think I've seen the business change. And you tell me if this hits you at all, is that when I came up, it used to be the answer. You had to go. You had to go report. You had to find sources. You had to confirm things. Now, a lot of the business is the question: Can Gronkowski yeah. block for Brady? And that can fill a whole day, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Should and so it. Uh, I guess now, like you say, the the bar atmosphere is really what the job is. Right. Well, it's so many hours to fill, whether that's podcasts or radio or television or websites, right? So a column is a well thought out thing where you're going to have a thesis that you prove. Many of the shows are just, let's ask questions and see what our opinions are. Let's, it's, it's, it's a lot of hypotheticals, which if you're a diehard sports fan, you love the hypotheticals. And if you um, prefer 
you know, more evidence-based discussions, they get frustrating. I don't like to do, could the 85 Bears defense beat, you know, the Patriots offense? I, I It's not <laughs> interesting to me. What rules are they using and who's playing and what, you know? So I, I, you know, some of the hypotheticals are not that intriguing to me, but we're filling a lot of, a lot of time and space now. And so I think that changes the face of it for sure. Um, so I wanted to ask you some questions based on the fact that you've been in this for a long time and sort of over the course of time. Um, something that women are still facing um, decades later is at what age are you no longer appealing sexually? And then therefore are you expected to change your role or are you expected to fade out? And there's been lawsuits in fact about uh, networks trying to get women off the air when they, when they were no longer the, 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 you know, peak age. Did you have that fear at all as you were, you know, getting into your forties or fifties or whatever that you would be ushered out? Uh, I've had to pivot, and uh, I guess when you tell people you're on Medicare, that's probably <laughs> going to be great for your future in the business. But, uh, you know, you look at Bruce Arians is 68, and Andy's 62, and uh, there's still an awful lot of people doing great work uh, in their seventh decade. And um, I think I was able, I think I've been able to pivot a lot. Not, I really appreciate people your age, Sarah, because you have to pivot into all kinds of platforms. You know, mm -hmm. you be able to write and radio and quick and get in, get out. But um, I didn't want to do sidelines anymore by the end of my 40s. So I sort of went back uh, when I started at CBS, I was on the NFL today where we paid a lot of money for features, like really big money. Um, or, or uh, real sports, as you probably know, they yeah. have this budget. So after doing all those sidelines in every single sport, uh, I said, you know what? I really do want to go back to features. And then the greatest thing happened to me in my career. CBS decided to have an all-women's sports talk show, the first at the network level. Mm -hmm. Probably had on a lot of those women. But we are such a sorority of excellence and achievement. And, you know, when you have Swin Cash and Lisa Leslie and Amy Trask and Dana Jacobson, yeah. we are in Tracy Wolfson and we talk ball or, or we ask um, Dara Torres, how could you possibly get to five Olympics right. with, with Dara? And you want to know how she trains? Uh, she gets on a bench with a big round 25 pound weight and above her head over the bench, she does the alphabet. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that that's been fantastic. And I've got, I've been able to do a lot of social justice stories. Um, I did a story with Misty Copeland, of course, the first uh, black female principal dancer with the American ballet, yeah. but it was a, it was a, we talked about her being an athlete, how ballet, a lot of people don't know what incredible athletes they are. So um, I, I've loved it. Yeah, I, I've loved the pivot, but you must be prepared to pivot. Yeah, that's a, a key to longevity is being able to adjust your skill set for the needs of the changing market and also for you. Um, you talked earlier about your attitude of gratitude, and I think it's a great one. And it's something I talk about a lot, but I think there is also a pivot now in women to stop being grateful just to be here, to stop being grateful for the opportunity to accept the ways that we are still not equal because we're supposed to be so grateful just to get a chance. Do you think that if you were starting out now, you would be able to deal with some of the inequities as easily? Or do you think that now that it's been decades since you had to face those things, we should have taken enough steps to not still be asking some of the same questions and demanding some of the same things? 
Yeah, it was really discouraging to me that um, you and Julie, um, I mean, you won a Peabody Award, you deserved a Nobel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I really, I thought by now, I I really did not think these would matter. And uh, it worked for me. Um, I'm embarrassed to say I never asked for a raise, which is insane. I would never recommend that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, what worked for me was to... um, try to make it real what I was going through to the coaches, to my bosses, uh, rather than storm the barricades. That wasn't the way I was going to get it done. And, you know, I hope that the work stood for that. Yeah, women can do that and be taken seriously. But I mean, you have to tell me, is it is it a, a fight, a constant fight? So again, I'm now in a position where the work I'm doing doesn't require me to have new people every day telling me no or new people that are not respecting me um, because it's a lot of the same co-hosts and producers and, and everything else and colleagues that are very respectful. Um, I, I would like to get back into the locker rooms more often because I think I would walk in there certainly with a very different perspective than I did when I was 27 and just getting in there for the first time. So like I said, and I, I, I feel like as I'm reading more and more stories of, you know, harassment, and it feels like every woman has her own story, that the ceiling is higher than ever, but the basement is the same. You can now call NFL games, you can be an official, you can have almost any job, but your basement is still going to be as a young woman getting through all the bullshit. And that's the same in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s to now. Um, and there's more people listening if you want to tell. And there's more people hopefully pushing you to come forward. But this is still an industry that forgives men and punishes women for those incidents, regardless of them not being at all at fault. And that's what we have to figure out how to get through. Well, I would say there are a couple of hurdles to get over there. One is that for thousands of years, men have been androgen. Yeah had estrogen and uh, they don't always meet harmoniously. And so that is, and I mean, it's not happening fast enough for either of us and that's good. But I mean, really, when you look, it was only 45 years ago that the credential for me said women are not allowed and now they don't, that's not the hurdle. And dealing with the testosterone that uh, I don't know It seems to me that when I meet young men, they have no problem listening to you or to Michelle Tafoya or to me. Uh, I mean, I I don't notice that uh, there was an enormous groundswell that Sarah Thomas shouldn't be an official in the Super Bowl. I mean, there are a lot of things that have gotten better. Absolutely. Yeah. And and yes, I just don't know how. Everyone, I think every woman has to deal with it herself. And then for people like you, there is that sorority that they can turn to. I mean, we need to talk on CBS. Yeah, we all talk about what we've been through, what, you know, might happen. I mean, Swin Cash is in the front office now, the Pelicans. When when would you ever think that that would happen? You know, we're Amy Trask, uh, 30 years as the COO and CEO. And uh, Amy's been one of my best friends for decades. And she and I used to say, okay, you know, what kind of mail did you get today? (laughs) Right, 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 right. Um, You know, you can, I believe if you have opportunity, which so many women in the world don't. And um, I don't know, maybe you have too. I had the privilege of meeting Nelson Mandela. Wow. Mm -mm. But Nelson Mandela is person who after he got out of his prison, which is, you know, in Robben Island, he could stretch his arms out for 27 years and touch both sides of the cell. And when he came out, 
first thing he did was embrace the all-white South African rugby team. The movie Invictus, of course, was made yeah. about, about it. And um, uh, someone asked uh, Nelson Mandela, you know, why weren't you bitter? And why did you do that? And he said, because sports has the power to change the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It it does feel like there are moments where sports is leading the way and then there are moments where it's well behind, depending on. And, and I'm curious because I remember reading this thing that suggested um, that eras of great progressive movements of rights for marginalized groups. What tends to result after that is, is, a, is a massive pushback from people who fear that change. So sort of two steps forward, one step backlash. And you said the 60s were actually a good time for you to try to be getting into all this because there was a lot of this like, let's rethink the way we've always done things. Let's be freer in the way we approach things. I wasn't alive for the 60s and 70s. And I wonder, does it feel like a wave? Like there are moments like in the 60s where it feels like, of course, we're going to be free and open to this. And then things shut down and then it comes back because it does feel like if if we had kept momentum from then till now, we'd be even farther along. We wouldn't still have to have the conversations that you had 40 years ago today. Well, nothing is linear. I mean, we... uh you know, Blacks uh, were freed 100 years before Malcolm X and Martin Luther King had to get Mm -hmm. started again. Until now, Colin Kaepernick and LeBron and the women of the WNBA have had to do it again. So um, ground gained is not always ground held. And uh, it's really important for people to know that, that even in my own case, uh, following me, the great Chris Brennan in 1985 was the first woman to cover the Redskins for the Washington Post. And then five years after that was when the Patriots had the incident with Lisa Olson. So um, it's just got to be constantly that you stand, you stand at the front of the line and, uh, you know, you're just sometimes you are going to get run over. I mean, like I said, I was physically thrown out of the cotton bowl. So sometimes it is going to happen, but um, hopefully uh, when you look back on it, it's, it shows great progression. Stephen A's World streams weekdays on ESPN+, Plus, bringing fans Stephen A. Smith's entertaining perspective and deep expertise with signature guests. The best interviews from Stephen A's World are now available as a podcast every Wednesday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and watch Stephen A's World on ESPN+. Plus. Okay, I have a quick speed round for you. These are going to be tough because you've been at this for a long time, but uh, whatever is the first thing that pops into your head, don't overthink it. Okay, favorite athlete to cover? Billie Jean King. Favorite coach? Rick Majerus. Least favorite athlete to cover? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Oh, no. That's a disappointment. Well, you know what it was? He was kind of a combination, which he is. He's fiercely intelligent. He's also arrogant. Stubborn, yeah. He really, and when you know his intelligence, he didn't want to be bothered with post-game questions. So one they had, uh, had a comeback against uh, Portland. So I had to go out and ask him, you know, uh, Brent Musburger, or whoever was, threw it to me, Greg Gumbel. And I say, Kareem, to what do you attribute the comeback? And Sarah, you live in this world too. Uh, you know how long eight seconds of nothing is. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm standing there and I ask him the question and he looks down for eight seconds and says nothing and finally says, what? Oh, no. It's like the pre-Popovich, right? I'm too good for this question. I love pop, but those exchanges are sort of like, if you don't earn a good answer, I'm not giving you anything. 
Well, I'll tell you, I have a couple of, uh, Greg Popovich wrote me a handwritten note when I went into the Hall of Fame in Canton for swimming. Uh, so that was great. Uh, and Bill Belichick, I finally just figured it out with him. You know how we have to do those halftime, those horrible yeah. NFL halftime interviews. Okay, so you know I did a million Patriot games and one time, uh, when Bill Belichick's coming off the field and I have to ask him, and of course he's going to give me the mumbles thing, right? Yeah. So what I did was in the middle of his answer, I just looked at him cross-eyed uh-huh. and he had to laugh. You know, it yeah. was just unusual. He had to so, break that, uh, that stone face of his. Um, yeah, everybody gets it. What about your least favorite coach to cover? Coaches I admire. I, I didn't cover him, but I don't think Coach Gundy would have been one of my. No, I, don't, I can't. I can't you know, I've dealt that. NBA guys are professional. Yeah. All guys are professional. Um, I loved, I probably should have said John Madden or Majerus. Um, yeah. I loved John Madden. I got to go, I traveled on his bus with him for about yeah. five years. Oh, wow. That's great. great. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of them, but the biggest pinch me moment where you were actually in the moment of the job that you had gotten the opportunity to do and you were like, I can't believe I'm here. Uh, Villanova 66, Georgetown 64. That's great. I love that you have it down to the, down to the score, uh, a job you wanted and didn't get. Wow. That hasn't been my challenge. Mine is the reverse. Uh, <laughs> I did the uh, morning news for a week when Katie Quirk left and uh, Andrew Hayward, our great, um, he was the president of CBS news. And he said, Leslie, you know, you're curious about everything. You can do this. You can do this. And honest to God, Sarah, I was terrible, <laughs> terrible. You know, I, I mean, it was, I was, I looked like I had rigor mortis you know, <laughs> about the Canadian auto workers, you know, I, yeah. about Michigan, Notre Dame, you know, or whatever. And uh, yeah, so no, mine was the reverse. Some opportunities I should have said, no, thank you. Person who gave you your biggest break. Vin Storia. Uh, he was mm. here at the Boston Globe. People uh, love him. Yeah. Isn't he the best? Vince could make you feel great even when you didn't get an assignment. Like I <laughs> yeah. went into his office one time and he said he said he was making all the assignments for Lake Placid. And he said, Oh, Leslie, you're not going to go to Lake Placid, aka the Miracle on Ice. He said, You're going to stay here and cover indoor box lacrosse. And I went out of his office. Yeah, that's the greatest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. He's got that down then. He keeps he keeps people being mad at him for, for assignments. Um and who's one of your biggest mentors? Well, they, all those writers at the Globe, yeah. Donna, Bud. I used to go to those events, right? And I would say, hi, I'm Leslie Visser from the Boston Globe. I work with Peter Gammons. So I would have to say that collection, the gang of four, Peter yeah. Gammons, Bob Ryan, Will McDonough, and Bud Collins. That's great. Um, I have so many more questions for you, but we're out of time. So before I let you go, you have to do the other speed round, the thing that everybody gets but nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, your current career is canceled. There is no sports. What job do you do instead? I would love to write children's books. Oh, I like that. Uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, presenting the Lombardi Trophy. What does it go to? Uh... 120 countries around the world and uh, Jack Ken Cook fighting me for the microphone. So all 
anyone can hear, 150 million people around the world is, get the mic out of Jack Kent Cook's hands. And it was like a wrestling match. <laughs> oh my gosh. Very nervous. Uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for a day. What is it? I'd like to open my mouth and have Aretha's voice come out. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Not likely. Uh, no. Number four, what current celebrity, music, politics, TV, would you most like to be your best friend? They have to be living? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, Tina Fey. Oh, good one. That would be nice. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? I can't stand the music during timeouts of an end. <laughs> game when you want to talk about the game it's <laughs> funny um number six what's the most embarrassed you've ever been oh uh that would be interviewing i don't know if you want to hear this story but um on network television when i interviewed hana mandlikova so um i'd gone from television i mean i'd, I'd gone from the boston globe to television and uh did i mention that i hadn't had experience in television. <laughs> I just so, assumed you picked it up overnight. Okay. I didn't even I, ask. <laughs> can, people, can people pick that up? Yeah. So my first assignment, which I'd covered 10 of them for the Globe, was the U.S. Open tennis back when, you know, it was all the great Americans, Chris and Martina mm -hmm. and Roe Connors. Uh, it was fantastic. And um, so there was a young player, Hannah Mandlikova. She'd grown up in Prague, uh, named, uh, she loved, idolized Martina. So she had a great summer in uh, 84, 85. She went, um, you know, she won the US Open actually that summer. So uh, they say, okay, go out and interview Hannah Mandlikova after her first match out in one of the outer courts. So you know, I'm, I am terrified and I'm nervous and uh, I have no idea basically what's <laughs> going on. And so they throw it to me, let's go to Leslie who's with Hannah Mandlikova. And I said, Hannah, to what do you attribute your sudden rise in the rankings? You went from fifth, 55th in the world up to fifth. And Hannah said, well, I think it is my new couch. So I thought, hmm, she must be better. So I say on network television, so did you get some new furniture? Oh, no. And me, don't, on network television, don't be ridiculous. Billie Jean King, my new coach. Uh. <laughs> now, I want you to top that, Sarah. I no, want, because when I tell mine, everybody says, oh, I have nothing like that. No, I did. My friend married an Italian guy and he was telling a story once about his, um, my farmer girlfriend. And I finished, he got to the end of the story and I said, wait, so she was a farmer? And I yes. really thought that he meant farmer girlfriend because I'm a moron. Of course. Yep. That's hysterical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very similar. Yep. Uh, number six. What's the most, uh, sorry, seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? My patience. Mm -hmm. Give it to me now. Give me patience now. <laughs> no, there's not enough time to be patient. That's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going with that. It's too much to do to be patient. Uh, number eight, any band alive or dead could play at your next party. Who is it? Beethoven. Ooh. The even. The even. Brow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like the sixth. I was raised on classical. Nice. Yeah. Or uh, maybe um, a jazz band. Yeah. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Oh, well, I think I shared that, uh, the CBS morning news, <laughs> I was, um, 
you know, horrific. I mean, it, it, uh, the only, finally, when I just, you know, gave it up, I'm sure you've been in that situation where you're in such a hole, you just give it up. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was supposed to do a segment with the new Christmas toys that were coming out, Mr. Potato Head, and they're all lined up, right? And here's Mr. Potato Head goes to the grocery store, whatever. And finally, I just said to the guy, what happened to Mrs. Potato Head? <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Separated? Well, that was pretty much the end of my stint. Uh, finally, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Loyal, weak, a pal. Nice. Those are good ones. Uh, and finally, who should I have on this podcast? Who's someone great in any industry that I should uh, have on here to talk? Doris Kearns Goodwin. Ooh, that would be a good one. I'm writing that down. I mean, she's, I mean, who, do, who doesn't want to hear her talk about a team of rivals, which, you know, we could use yeah. in our political climate. Uh, yeah, and she's just Beyond. Plus, she's a, she grew up a Dodger fan when they moved to L.A. She became a Red Sox fan. And she's, you know, she cares about why do we get rid of Mookie Betts? Yeah, she knows her stuff. Uh, Leslie, thank you for this. This was an incredible way to start my Women's uh, History Month series of podcasts. You are amazing. And your memory is unbelievable. I don't remember things that happened two years ago. And you have scores from like 25 years ago. It's wild. Well, I got that. I will leave you with this. I got that from the great Red Smith, the first uh, writer to win a Pulitzer Prize. And at the Kentucky Derby, he used to ask a young person in the business to walk the infield with him before it was all corporate tents. And uh, we were walking along. He asked me, this was in the probably mid, late 70s. And uh, he said, Leslie, I'm going to give you one piece of advice for your career. And I want you to do it. He said, whatever you're covering, whoever you're talking to, make a memory. Hmm. I love that. I thought it was going to be like, write it down somewhere over and over until it's ingrained in your head. Cause that's the only way I remember things. Make a memory. No, but you have yeah. postcards of it. You yeah. Know, I can see Villanova. I can see um, the triple crown winners or whatever buzzer beaters, you know, yeah. like that's great. Picking through the uprights. So awesome. I want you to do that. Cause I'm making a memory with you. I we're making a memory right now and I'm going to try to make a memory going forward when I, when I cover those things, see if I can get those scores stuck in my head. Uh, thank you so much, Leslie. This was awesome. We could have talked for hours more because uh, your bio is insane. There's too much to talk about. <laughs> well, and thank you, Sarah, for all you do. Seriously. Uh, you know, it's like, um, if you see it, you can be it. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you help us all out there. That's what she said. Oh yeah. One more thing. So yeah, here's where I rant or rave, uh, tell you what to read, tell you what you told me, um, whatever's on my mind, really. And as Women's History Month kicks off, I want to recommend some reading on the concept of intersectionality and how feminism and support of women requires educating yourself about the lived experiences and the unique challenges of being a woman and how it may intersect with the other parts of someone's life, a woman and a person of color, a woman and differently abled, a woman and LGBTQ+, and a good reading on where the concept of intersectionality came from and sort of the reactions, both positive and negative to the concept, is on Vox.com. It's called The Intersectionality Wars by Jane Coaston. Um, and shout out that uh, the woman who helped create the concept is a Cornell grad. 
Love it. Uh, give it a read and and really dig into it because I want to make sure when we say we support women and we advocate for equality, we are talking all women, not just those that look like us. I'm going to keep working on it and educating myself, and I hope you do too. Intersectional feminism, super important. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you got guest suggestions or just want to hit me up with a question. Go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate five stars, please. And give me a review or leave me a question or whatever you want to do. Thanks, as always, for lasting more than an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs>